Hebrews chapter 1 until 2 verse 4. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the father, fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will to be him a I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son, of, unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever, a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us, by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So far the reading of the word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, help us to hear it, to obey it, to love it, and to love you as the author of it. In Jesus' name we pray. 
I'm just going to uh, begin again by reading that last section as we're going to be looking at uh, the verses from chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I just want to read that again for you. Please listen carefully. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. I'd like to also thank JP for reading the scriptures. He has a very good voice for reading and singing. And... Uh, Quite a contrast between his voice and mine, I think, and probably between uh, most of us. In fact, if you look around this room, you can see many contrasts. You can see that there are young people, and some of us not so young. You can see beautiful young children and teenagers filled with, I hope, the optimism and hope that only a young person often has. And I hope that that's rooted in their hope for the future in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many contrasts in the world. If you look around, as I said, this room, you can see many. Chairs, no couches. We're used to soft couches at home, but here we have chairs. But today we want to look at a contrast that is deeper, wider, broader, and of more consequence than any of the contrasts in this world, even though those contrasts made by God help us to enjoy the world that he has created, there is a contrast that is far greater than any of these. And that's the contrast that we see in the book of Hebrews, in the life, in the person, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. You recall, as we looked at the introduction some, it's a long time ago now, of Hebrews, there are seven statements about Jesus Christ that are made about him and cannot be made about anyone else. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. He is the agent of creation. He is the brightness of God's glory, the exact image of God. <clears throat> Jesus upholds all things by his word, and Jesus himself purged us of our sins, and he sat down at the right hand of God. From this position of authority, Jesus continues the ministry he began on earth. He has gone into that heavenly city, into the very presence of God, on our behalf, as a forerunner, taking the position of an immortal, all-sufficient high priest. Hebrews contrasts Jesus' completed substitutionary death with the shadows and types of the Old Testament. 
It contrasts Jesus with angels, with Moses, with the earthbound high priests of the old covenant. And Hebrews contrasts the new covenant established in Christ with the old. In every case, Jesus is greater. And what he did on the cross is greater than any sacrifice in the old covenant. The contrast is, in fact, infinite in scope. These various comparisons, though, are not to be taken as isolated ideas or even isolated doctrines. The great salvation, the fullness of what Christ has done, is part of a tapestry, as one theologian writes. A beautiful tapestry which find its, finds its coherency in Christ. It is Christ who brings coherence to the whole of theology, and each doctrine cannot be understood apart from him. As the writer of Hebrews weaves this tapestry, he takes time to step aside from his main argument and make sure we are listening to what he is saying. He pauses, like a pastor delivering a message and making application to our daily lives. He bids us draw near, come closer, listen to what I call pastoral warnings, exhortations, and encouragements. That's what he's doing in these first four verses of chapter 2. One of the warnings in the book that are scattered throughout. These warnings bear witness to the reality of the life and death struggle that, is, that required a great salvation. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's another warning in chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's another warning in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, 
and have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. In this warning, the writer continues on with an illustration which equates God's blessings to rain. The rain falls as rain does, sometimes gently, sometimes extremely hard. The earth receives it and yields tasty herbs. But in some cases, no herbs. The only yield is thorns and briars, which are good for nothing but to be burned. Obviously, there are differences in these warnings, just as there are many different warnings in Scripture. These warnings bear witness to the reality of the life and death struggle that required a great salvation. Another example of a warning from the Old Testament. Remember Eli and his sons? Eli was a temple priest, but he sinned against the Lord because he didn't correct his sons. He neglected God's warning. The word of God was rare in those days, the passage tells us. And the Lord spoke to young Samuel, and Samuel brought this news to Eli. 1 Samuel 3, 13-14 For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. If we were to develop a category designation for God's warnings, this one might be the equivalent of a Category 5. You know those hurricane designations that they have? A Category 5 hurricane has winds of over 250 kilometers an hour, and even well-built houses are flattened. Just as Eli's house falls, and even the loss of God's presence in the ark. It's gone. So what category are the warnings we just read through in Hebrews? In our passage today, the author asks, how shall we escape? If we continue to read further in the chapter, we are given an answer. In verse 9, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. As an old hymn reminds us, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. The wind of God's warning is blowing. 
but there is a way of escape. By God's marvelous grace, Christ has made a shelter in the midst of the storm. But what is at stake? It is death itself. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Life and death is at stake. This warning, like the others, bears witness to the reality of the life and death struggle that required a great salvation. The stakes are high. The warnings are given to spur us on to walk in faith. These warnings taken to heart brace us for the battle of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Listen to this verse following the warning, warning from chapter 6. The warning is severe. Chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they fall away, to renew them again into, unto repentance. Impossible. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. This is definitely a Category 5 warning. The wind of God is blowing so strongly that surely all will be lost. But thanks be to God. As you look further into the book again, Look at verse 9 of that chapter. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we speak thus. And he goes on a little bit further on in verses 11 and 12. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What is the author's heart desire? It is that all who hear his warnings live by faith in Christ and do not neglect all the promises that have been fulfilled by the completion of the great once, and all, once for all sin sacrifice on that cross of Calvary. Why is the author so concerned? 
It is because of the reality of the life and death struggle that required a great salvation. That is why he offers the examples in Hebrews 11. Just a partial list of those who have gone before us. Ordinary men and women who put their faith in the greatest person in the entire universe. The one and only son of God who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The author wants each of us to live in hope and have confidence that Christ's death has, as he says in chapter 9, verse 14, purged our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If we have indeed heard the reality of Jesus' superiority, the contrast between the one who is God in the flesh and all the other false means of trying to achieve peace with God, surely we want to give Jesus our close attention. The stakes are high. Death and life hang in the balance. How then do we know that this salvation is great and that we can trust it? Let's look at the text starting in verse 3 and see if we can answer that question. How do we know that this salvation is great and that we can trust it? How shall we escape, in verse 3, if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Truth number one. The message of salvation came directly from the words of Jesus Christ. The great salvation was first spoken by the Lord. Jesus came preaching and teaching. Jesus spoke the salvation he came to accomplish. In fact, the Gospel of John calls him the Word made flesh. His communication of truth is so much a part of his being that it is one of his attributes as the Son incarnate. When Jesus walked among men, even his opponents could not oppose his words. John records that the chief priests and the officers were sent to question Jesus, and they were actually to bring him back under arrest. But they came back empty-handed and reported, no man ever spoke like this man. And no wonder. Who could stand and declare, as Jesus did, I and my Father are one? And elsewhere, I am the bread of life, he that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, 
But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. These are just a few of the words of Jesus. He is the source of our understanding of salvation. He spoke it, he lived it, he fulfilled it. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved, and there's no other name under heaven that did those things, lived them, spoke them, fulfilled them. Truth number one, the message of salvation came directly from the words of Jesus Christ. And our Lord did not speak these words without other witnesses, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Truth number two, there were many eyewitnesses who confirmed what Jesus did and taught. We have the sure testimony of scripture written by those who were eyewitnesses of the Lord's ministry. We can read the accounts of Jesus' life, his words. We can read of his death, his resurrection. We can read for ourselves Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the good news of how Jesus taught, the significance of his life, the significance of his death and resurrection. We can read the letters which explain how salvation changed the way we look at the world. We can read the history of how the church began to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus' testimony was, as it were, given legal assent by those who heard him speak. His followers did not only record what they witnessed, they were willing to die for the message of a Savior who gave his life for the sins of all those who would put their faith in him. The Apostle Paul summarizes the factual testimony that stands behind our scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. The great salvation accomplished in and through our Lord Jesus Christ is well attested. His life was and is a fulfillment of what is written. You can trust what the eyewitnesses saw and recorded for your benefit. It was first of all spoken by the Lord, and it has been confirmed by those that heard him. The good news is not a matter of hearsay. The witnesses are firsthand. If you were a lawyer defending a case, you would be overjoyed to have so many firsthand witnesses. No one wants to rely on hearsay. Hearsay. 
In the scriptures, we have the witness of men and women who walked and talked with our Lord and saw him give his life a ransom for many. So far we have seen, by way of the introduction, the unique supremacy of Jesus, his person and work. He is contrasted throughout Hebrews as superior to any other. We have seen that the warnings in Hebrews, and indeed all scripture, bear witness to the reality of the life and death struggle that required a great salvation. And we have seen two truths flowing from verse 3 of our text to answer the question, can we trust this salvation? Truth number one, the message of salvation came directly from the words of Jesus. Jesus did not come without the specific purpose of fulfilling that this, all that the scriptures foretold. He came to preach and teach and embody the types and shadows of the Old Testament. Truth number two, there were many eyewitnesses who confirmed what Jesus did and taught. Now look at verse four. Are you looking? <laughs> God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Which brings us to truth number three. God miraculously confirmed the veracity of those who bore witness to the words of Jesus. The apostles and their companions were not alone in their testimony. Jesus declared the great salvation those who heard him ultimately gave their lives to take that good news to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God himself bore witness as Jesus spoke and as he did the Father's work, healing the sick and raising the dead. And God himself raised Jesus from the dead as a legal declaration of his completed redemptive work. God poured the Holy Spirit into the witnesses and guided them into truth. God gave them the ability to speak with power, to apply the truth that Jesus had taught, to heal the sick, and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. God poured the love of Christ into the hearts of those men and women who make up those who, who would live for the first time in the light of the new covenant of Christ's blood. God changed the fearful disciples, those men and women cowering in the upper room into witnesses who would forever be changed and who would forever change the world. We are the fruits of those great declarations those incomparable words and works spoken and verified by God, as through the ministry of his word, men and women were given new life, born again by the Spirit of God. The testimony of the disciples and of God himself rings down through history in sharp contrast to anything the world has to offer. 
But there is a sad fact. We can quickly lose sight of those most important truths. Going back to verse 1 of our passage. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. If we realize the greatness of God's salvation, you wouldn't think that would happen. But we are often quick to neglect the most obvious facts, even when they are staring us in the face. Let me give you a few examples. First of all, the children of Israel. Example number one, God's chosen people in their wilderness, just been brought out of Egypt. Are they continually faithful and thankful? No. They have just witnessed the greatest miracles that they have ever seen in their lives, and yet they quickly grumble and complain. Another example of us forgetting the facts and the reality and the greatness of Jesus Christ in comparison to every other being our fascination with angels. Maybe not you and I here, but many people. They buy little angel statues and put them around in their houses. People really do believe that angels and their visitations are more exciting than a savior who dies and suffers. Another example from a story that D.A. Carson told many years ago. He was at the time an undergrad studying, studying chemistry, I think it was, at McGill University. And he had a friend who was from the Middle East. His friend was trying to convert him to Islam. And uh, D.A. Carson, in turn, was sharing the gospel with him and had given this fellow a copy of the Gospel of John, and he was reading through it. On one particular day, Dr. Carson and his friend were touring a building, and I forget which building it was, but I believe it was uh, one of the Parliament buildings, type buildings in Ottawa. And as they were going on the tour with a group of other people, they saw a statue of Moses that was placed there and I guess it's still there to this day, I imagine, to uphold the fact that Moses and the law are extremely important. And as we heard this morning, Moses and the law is extremely important. But there is one who is more important. And as this fellow, who was a friend of D.A. Carson's, saw this statue, he suddenly remarked in his loud Middle Eastern voice, where is Jesus Christ? And the tour guide, kind of taken aback, pardon me. And so he said it again. Where is Jesus Christ? And he quoted John 1.17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. 
So we see that they have a statue of Moses, but there's no statue of the one who is of much greater significance and importance, Jesus Christ. Because it is easy to lose sight of the most important things in life. And people also like to hold on to old traditions. I recall being in university and one of my professors converted to Catholicism, partly because he taught Latin and all those classical kinds of things. And he liked all those rituals and traditions that the Catholic faith continues to this day. In fact, he was of the opinion that they should still do Mass in Latin because it was more eloquent. He had missed the reality of the fact that all these things are, in a sense, totally meaningless because they had been surpassed by the salvation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we do neglect the obvious things because of our own traditions and presuppositions. And we forget the centrality and greatness of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. As one commentator puts it, and I'm paraphrasing his words, we don't have to be in obvious rebellion to the Lord in order for us to slip away from him. We can just ignore or not pay earnest attention to God's salvation. We should pay close attention. We're just a little too tired, too busy, too in love, too wrapped up in our own ambitions and dreams. So we just let the opportunity to draw near to Christ slip away. The word translated here, slip, has been used in the sense of one's letting a ring slip off a finger. So it's not a picture of us taking our wedding ring and like ripping it off and throwing it across the room in some kind of fit of anger and hurt or despair. It's more like we're just not paying attention. Things have changed in our lives, maybe. And we're a bit nonchalant about the ring. It slips off. Or perhaps we could say that we ourselves have drifted away from its significance. At one time we held it and the meaning behind it as very dear. But somehow the daily grind of our lives has just moved us away from that understanding. We've moved away from the faith that we once held so closely. As another commentator said, we wake up one morning and look in the mirror and we don't recognize the person that we have become. And it wasn't one great act of rebellion. We just drifted along and we let our relationship with God slip away. When we don't think to pray or praise 
What are we doing? We are neglecting what Jesus has done. And even neglecting what he still is doing now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Yet, we ignore the needs of our wife, we ignore the needs of our family, and we put ourselves first. We disobey our parents. We participate in that lewd joke. We gossip. And in so doing, we push Jesus Christ aside. If we were to look closely at how this happens, we gain insight by again looking ahead in the book of Hebrews. For example, after the author warns us in chapter 3 not to harden our hearts, he explains in the 12th verse of that chapter. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And then at the end of verse 13, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Which brings out truth number five. Unbelief and the deceitfulness of sin lead to drift. If we drift away from our Lord, there's an element of unbelief functioning in our lives. Our faith has faltered. Invariably, sin has in some way tricked us. We have believed a lie. Perhaps we don't believe that one particular sin is very harmful. We don't believe that the wind of God's judgment will blow any stronger than what we are experiencing right now here today. So we continue. We let sin deceive us. And we continue to live, if we do, continue to live in patterns of unbelief. One day our houses will be flattened. For we will have drifted so far from God that there is no return. What then shall we do? I skipped over a portion of verse 13 in chapter 3 that I was just looking ahead to. Did you notice? It's at the very beginning of the verse. Short little phrase. But exhort one another daily. Truth number six. We need to exhort one another daily to escape the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews reminds us that we need to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. According to the Cambridge Online Dictionary, exhortation is the act of strongly encouraging or trying to persuade someone to do something. In biblical terminology, I think there's an added dimension to exhortation. As we exhort one another, we are encouraging and persuading, but we do it in a uniquely Christian way. To illustrate this point, I just want to tell a, sto- a little story. The story is told of a fellow who sold a mule 
to a neighbor at the beginning of the planting season. He instructed the buyer, now when you hook the mule up to the plow, just speak to him gently with kind words and it will work hard for you. So this fellow takes the mule, puts it in harness and sets to work. Come on, fella, let's get some plowing done. We would want this crop to be put in, to grow and produce fruit. We want to enjoy the fruit of our labor. I know you're a big, strong animal. Pulling this plow is easy for you. So let's get it going. And he continues in this manner for a while. Nothing happens. Then it happens that his neighbor who sold him the mule is just walking by and he looks out into the field and he sees that his neighbor is working with his former animal. But he sees that there's been no plowing done. So he walks on over and says, hey, how are things going? Well, says his friend, this mule doesn't seem to want to work. I'm doing what you told me to do. And he says to the mule, patting him on the head, come on, fella, let's get it going. And just after he says that, the fellow who sold him the mule suddenly pulls a club out of the backpack on his back and just whacks that mule as hard as he can. And then he says to the mule, come on now, let's get it going. And lo and behold, the mule starts pulling and starts plowing. And he says to his friend, you just have to get his attention first. Sometimes God just needs to get our attention by giving us a, wha a whack. And that's what he does in some of these warnings. He's just giving us a whack so that we pay attention. In fact, when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that's the only way he can get our attention. In our deadness, he has to do things to wake us, and sometimes they are severe. But when we ourselves exhort one another, I know I've done it, sometimes I act like I'm God, and I want to whack my neighbor like that person who whacked the mule. But we need to keep something else in mind when you, we're exhorting one another. We're not God. We're just like our neighbor. We have to be mindful of Galatians 6, 1 to 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness or gentleness, considering thyself lest thou be also tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The definition of exhortation in a biblical sense includes the recognition of our own weakness and the fact that in Christ we live according to the law of love, which lives out compassion for our brothers and sisters. We come alongside one another, encourage, exhort, 
and bear one another's burdens, mindful of the fact that we could ourselves easily be tricked by sin. The fellowship or camaraderie which is assumed in this type of exhortation is a precious and fragile thing. May God grant that we labor together to build and maintain that love. And may his words dwell in our hearts and bear sweet fruit. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. One of the means that God has given us to keep us from drifting and neglecting the great salvation we have in Christ is one another. We need each other. That is one of the reasons why we should never forsake the gathering of the saints. That is why believing husbands, believing wives and children need to constantly encourage each other in the Lord. Truth number six, we need to exhort one another daily to escape the deceitfulness of sin. Nestled in the midst of the great contrasts and warnings, there's another gem in Hebrews. It's not in our passage for today, but we need to hold on to this truth and remember it. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This verse embodies truth number seven. God's word is instrumental in short-circuiting the deceitfulness of sin. Probably many of you have that verse memorized. And we could spend many messages, sermons, expanding the ideas contained in that verse. But I just want to reflect briefly, listen carefully, the fact that God's word is a crucial instrument of exhortation, growth, and discernment. The Spirit of God uses the words in our lives to show us the thoughts and intents of our hearts. This is the means by which we can short-circuit the deceitfulness of sin. If you don't want sin to trick you, you need God's Word. Sin is trying to trick us, but a mind firmly rooted in God's Word can discern or prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 2. Draw near to God through prayerful reading, study, and thinking on his word. Bow your knee and humble yourself under its teachings. Perhaps you have drifted or neglected the great salvation because of hard things that have happened to you. Suffering saint, be assured, Jesus is familiar with your griefs and sorrows. He himself never sinned, 
but he understands how sin works. Jesus identified with us and is glad to call us brothers and sisters. In fact, the hardship and suffering that Jesus went through goes far beyond what any of us have ever suffered. When Jesus went to the cross, he bore my sins. He bore your sins. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can put your trust in him. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you've gone through. He knows what you will go through. And he is always there to come alongside and comfort those who are suffering. One more thing from verses 2 to 3. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Neglecting God's word always has consequences. His word is sure. You can rely on it. He declares the beginning from the end. His word stands the test of time. As our text says, the word spoken by angels was steadfast. It has roots. It cannot be shaken because it flows from God, the source and rock of all truth. Turning from that word has resulted and will continue to result in the strong winds of God's judgment. Neglecting God's word always has consequences. My brothers and sisters, instead of following the example of those who neglect the great salvation, let us be among those who by contrast live through faith in the light and love of the Savior beyond compare, our Lord Jesus Christ. In summation, we have seen the unique supremacy of Christ's person and work. We have seen that there is a reality of a life and death struggle that required a great salvation. And we have seen from our text today 
that the message of salvation comes directly from the words of Jesus. And we have seen that there are many eyewitnesses who confirmed what Jesus did and taught. And we saw that God miraculously confirmed the veracity of those who bore this witness. And we also saw that we can quickly lose sight of the most important facts and that unbelief and the deceitfulness of sin can lead to drift and ultimately take us away from the Lord. We need to exhort one another daily to escape the deceitfulness of sin and the unbelief that can cause us to drift. God's word is instrumental in short-circuiting the deceitfulness that does that to us. And remember, neglecting God's word always has consequences. How then shall we live? Shall we walk in faith in the great Savior, the great and only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ? May God grant that in contrast to those who neglect his great salvation, that we will draw near to him and, as Hebrews says, obtain mercy and find grace to help in our times of trouble until he returns or takes us to be with him.